Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. There are two mandates involved in every post-traumatic stress disorder. The first is the responsibility of society to try to prevent or reduce the intensity of any future similar event, and the second is the post-event rehabilitation. The events themselves are usually quick to occur, but undoing the aftermath is usually slow, costly, and difficult, but not impossible. By chance, I was given a copy of Susan Bryson's book entitled Aftermath, Violence and the Remaking of a Self. She is an associate professor of philosophy at Dartmouth College, and her brave book is the story of a horrible sexual assault in which she was almost left to die. Usually people speak of a great book as one that they cannot put down. This was different, and I had to put it down many times so I could take the time to absorb what she was saying. I also was intrigued because a philosopher had so masterfully written about a psychiatric condition. Dr. Bryson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And thank you also for having the courage to bring us all into a very private part of your life. The book covers many aspects of your healing process. When you look back, what parts of the process were more difficult than others? I think the most difficult part was the the first few months when I was surrounded mainly by people who thought I'd had a very close call, but I'd survived, and so I should put this terrible experience behind me and just get on with my life. And I found that was impossible to do, and I needed to take time not only to heal, but to try to put my world back together again, because it had been completely shattered. And at that time, this was 20 years ago, I think people were much more reluctant to talk about rape. We've come a long way in the last two decades. But at that time, I found it was very difficult to come to terms with what had happened because of all the pressure on me to forget. And when I wasn't being exhorted to forget, I was being told how to remember it in ways that didn't make sense to me. For example, a lawyer I hired just to help me make sense of the French legal system at the time, my assault occurred outside of Grenoble, France, said, don't think of your assailant as as a man, as a human being. Think of him as, as a wild animal, as a beast, as a lion. And I'm thinking of him as a Frenchman, like my lawyer, who it seemed hated all women enough to want to kill me, the woman who just happened to be walking down a country road in broad daylight and was his victim. But the, the early months were difficult, and I didn't really have the vocabulary to describe what had happened. And it was really only after getting to know other rape survivors and joining a rape survivor's support group that I realized so many rape survivors were experiencing the same thing, uh, and I felt an obligation to start speaking about it and really insisting that other people listen. I read in the book that you even had asked your husband not to tell your family that you had been raped. I did, and I, I puzzle over that because I, I wasn't really conscious of feeling shamed, but looking back, I think I must have been. I think I worried my credibility as a thinker, as a scholar, as a researcher might be undermined. I had already been doing work in feminist philosophy, among other things, on pornography and violence against women, and didn't want my research to be dismissed as the ravings of a hysterical rape victim. And again, it was when I participated in the survivors, rape survivors support group. It happened to be in Center City, Philadelphia, the closest to where I was living in Princeton at the time. 
I found that I was through no virtue of my own one of the one of the more privileged people in the group and someone of whom it was very difficult to say she was asking for it. Right? The usual rape myths and tropes just didn't apply in my case. I was thirty five years old, married woman walking in wearing baggy pants and sweatshirts and jogging shoes in broad daylight in the French countryside, minding my own business. So I thought, and again, I had a certain kind of credibility that other people didn't have. And I thought, if I feel too ashamed to speak out about what happened to me, how are these other women possibly going to find their own voices and be heard so then it started feeling more like you know, political, if not moral, obligation to speak out. One of the things that kept coming to me as I read the book is that you are clearly an educated woman. You are clearly someone who thinks things through. You have trained over the years to use logic to try to figure things out. And so many of the people who are the victims of violence and assault the way you were, really don't have that background. They don't have that core ability to think things through. Did that help you or did that hinder you in your process of healing? I think initially it it hindered me. I found philosophy was utterly useless in helping me to come to terms with what had happened. You know, you think of philosophy as providing consolation or at least helping to make things make sense. But it was quite the opposite. I felt that I had somehow ventured beyond the realm of reason and nothing made sense. And one of the most frustrating things was that my training was to make sense of things. I wanted to be able to explain this, but in fact, I couldn't explain what had happened to me. And so I found the comfort of friends. I found music incredibly healing. I took a self-defense class, I did tap dancing, various physical things that enabled me to feel more at, at home in my body were very helpful. And that was certainly something I wasn't trained as a philosopher to do. I was used to living in my head. But this this was something that I simply couldn't couldn't make sense of. Now I say yeah, I say initially I, I think that made it more difficult. But eventually, as I felt pressure to speak out and I did talk about the assault and started writing about the assault. I was very fortunate to have a public who would listen. Mm-hmm. I published an, an article just a few years after the assault in the New York Times about surviving sexual violence. And that was very therapeutic for me, not just because I was able to, to tell my story and not feel shame about it, but because I felt that I was able to make some difference in the way that people were thinking about sexual violence. And I was presenting it as what happened to me was not, in, to my mind, a crime of, of passion, the act of a wild beast, you know, or a lion, or even a monster. This was the act of a man who had been raised in a particular culture to feel entitled to take his anger out on woman. You discussed, and I think this was a very powerful insight, and when I've spoken to people who have gone through various assaults, and I've quoted you on this, many of them will nod their heads and say, oh yes, oh yes. You mentioned that by taking 
or the psychological process at least of sometimes taking some of the blame because that gave you control over the situation. If you simply blamed the other person, you were very much the random victim. And I found that an interesting thought. Yes, yes. Well, I was really struck by the fact that really every other rape survivor I came across in the early months and the women who were in my support group with me all managed to, to find something that they thought they could blame themselves for. I just noticed this desperate urge to blame themselves, which was very troubling because it was feeding into society's victim-blaming attitudes about rape survivors. And just because of the circumstances of my assault, I found it very difficult to come up with anything that I could have done at the time to have avoided the assault. And that was what was absolutely terrifying. Because I couldn't say, oh, I, if only I hadn't done X, Y, or Z, I would have been okay. I had no guarantee that the next time I stepped out the door and went for a walk that I wouldn't be assaulted again. The universe just became completely unpredictable in a very frightening way. And that realization helped me to understand why so many, and not just not only rape survivors, but, but trauma survivors are really desperate to find something to blame themselves for because that, to blame yourself is less painful than to face the realization that you're out of control of your fate and you could be alive one minute and dead the next and there's nothing you can do about it. Which speaks to a safety net. Your safety net was completely torn apart. And then that leads to difficulties in trusting. Who do you trust? How do you trust? Do you trust the police? Do you trust the legal system? When I read your book, there was a lot of emotion about how you were surprised at the ways that the French police investigated a crime and the way they interrogated you. Well, but I have to say, I was a very, very lucky rape victim when it came to the legal system. First of all, my assailant was found, apprehended just a couple of days maybe just a day after the assault. I'm now forgetting. This is good. This is very good. <laughs> and was brought to trial two and a half years later. What I'm trying to get a handle on is the sense of what did you do with the fear? Now that trust was gone, now that you knew that violence could enter into your life, how did you deal with the fear and how did you rebuild your life around that fear or in spite of that fear? I took a women's rape prevention and self-defense class about six months after the assault, and that helped enormously. I continued to work with this particular instructor for years afterwards, and I knew that I had made some significant psychic progress when I awoke one morning from a dream in which I was being assaulted, and I managed to use these newly learned self-defense maneuvers on my assailant and get away. And it was a way that a way in which I was able to come up with a different sort of narrative. Okay, if this were to happen to me again, I would be able to do this other thing, which is not to say that I felt invulnerable or that I think women's rape prevention classes are a panacea. I mean, that's, that's not the case. But for me, it gave me enough confidence so that I could walk out the door, walk by myself. I have to say, I still don't go for long walks alone in the countryside or in the woods. That's just not something that is ever going to be fun for me. I used to go for lots of long hikes by myself, but I can live without doing that. My patients call these lingerings. I don't know if it exists as a formal term, 
but it does capture the notion of what you're talking about. Things that just I linger. I like that. It's a very it's a very poetic term, and it's it captures something that you know, the word triggers doesn't capture. It really is. It is a lingering, and it's not something that that traumatizes me. I have a a wonderful life, but I just I know that walking. <laughs> Certainly in a remote rural area in southern France is never going to be my idea of a good time. You also spoke in the book about your efforts to help girls be escorted across college campuses at night and some of the difficulties you had getting that passed. How shall I say this? It brought the dimension of the problems and the fears home to the average American girl going across the average American campus. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What I was trying to to get started was a women's rape prevention and self-defense course at Dartmouth. I had taken one at Princeton where I'd spent a year on disability leave because my husband teaches at Princeton. So that's where we were after my assault. But when I came back to Dartmouth after a year away and tried to get a women's self-defense course started, the response I got initially from administrators was, well, why? Why would we want nothing like that ever happens here? <laughs> In spite of the fact that two women graduate students had been axe murdered a block away from where I was living the night after I moved back up here. But in, in addition to that, many women are sexually assaulted on campuses. And women students at Dartmouth leave Dartmouth and go to other places. So, And, and in the end, people came around and there has been a women's rape prevention class offered ever since for the last 20 years. I was continuously and repeatedly struck as I read the book of the amount of emotional energy and the emotional perseverance that you had to get better. And I wondered, where did you get this energy? It, it was phenomenal. Was it because of your husband? Was it because of the uh, support groups? Was it from something else? It was incredible. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I don't think of myself as having had much energy <laughs> In fact, on bad days, even now, I think, oh, I wish I had, wish I wish I had greater strength. But as I mentioned before, partly I I was lucky. I had the positive experience of being able to bring my assailant to justice. He was found guilty of rape and attempted murder. I also, after several months, was able to start feeling angry about what happened to me, and that was helpful. And so the, although I, re, I did succumb to very deep depression after the assault, there were moments when I would just get fed up and say, I'll be damned if I'm going to finish my assailant's job for him. You know, I'm going to live. And I've, I've just been, been lucky to, to have that, but also very, very lucky to have a supportive husband and very close friends. It, it's it's very clear who your friends are, your real friends, after something like this happens. And I made new friends who were wonderfully supportive. You spent also, and I found it fascinating because you approached it from more of a philosophic position rather than a traditional psychiatric position. But you talked about the development of a sense of self, of how one defines oneself and the concept of oneself. And part of that definition of a self 
is in what are our relations to the people around us. And, of course, in that is a sense of trust. And that's one of the things that attracted me to the book is the way you wove through this area that most psychiatric texts and and thinkers, unless they took a couple courses in philosophy in school, they probably never approached it the way you outlined it. That's what I found so attractive. Well, what I came to think was that philosophers should pay a lot more attention to trauma survivors. I learned a lot about what is essential to sustain a self, you know, what can undo a self, and then what is needed in order to remake a self. So I went from feeling, as I said earlier in the interview, ashamed to talk openly about what had happened and feeling that my brain was disordered, I would never be able to think straight again, to feeling that I had gotten some new insights that were important for me to take into account as a philosopher. And I think you did do that and do it exceptionally well. And I I hope that a lot of people pick up your book and read it, especially those who are providing treatment. I must say that one of the sentences that you wrote stuck with me. And you were talking about how in the process of, of healing and getting yourself back into some, as the kids say, a better space. You wrote about having children, and you wrote that you had the fears of even letting a man get that close to you again, and that if you did have a child, could you let that child be away from your side? I thought that just captured the fear so poignantly of what so many people have told me about their projection of what the future is for them. I I thought that was poetic, frankly. Mm. Yes. Well... I have to say, I had been trying to get pregnant for six months before the assault, and I said, I cannot imagine bringing a child into a world like this. Not only would I be afraid of not being able to protect the child, but I mean, the world just was not a good enough place. What a difference it made, that sense of, of trust, but also that sense of, of hope that having a child forces you to have. Susan Bryson wrote a very insightful and thought-provoking book on the trauma of sexual and physical assault. She is also an associate professor of philosophy at Dartmouth College. The book is available on Amazon, and it is entitled Aftermath, Violence and the Remaking of Self. I highly recommend it for anyone who either treats people who have suffered from such traumas or people who are themselves the victims of such traumas. Dr. Bryson, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for your honesty. Thank you.